I'm super excited about this next guest who's just going to drop a ton of wisdom about the entrepreneurial journey. If you're currently wrestling with questions like, how do I get started at something that I feel called to do? Or if you're wondering whether you should keep going with what you're currently doing, or you wonder if you should just do something else altogether, I think he's going to help you powerfully navigate those questions and just give you a simple, a simple tactic to go back to every time you're uncertain. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. All right, hey, so I'm here with the founder and CEO of Commit Action. Commit Action helps business owners double their focus and productivity by providing an accountability coach. He's also the shrink for entrepreneurs. He's had basically over a decade working with founders and venture-backed tech with a client roster that's got a few billion in combined market cap. And uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, one of the just most extraordinary people in my lives, uh, one of my dearest friends, Peter Shallard. Really happy to have you here, Peter. It's great to talk with you in a more formal format. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm ex excited to be here. I'm also a card-carrying member of the Black T-Shirt Club. Um, so excited to be riffing with you today. And uh, yeah, thanks for the intro. Yeah, man. I was anticipating what your clothing choice would be. So I'll go with that story. That just seems like that'll hold up. So yeah, I think... Um, one, I just obviously really appreciate what you do. Uh, one with the coaching side, it's obviously something I believe in very much. I've always had a coach, uh, since I was running my own business. And the second thing is, you know, I, I really appreciated our conversations when we would just talk about me as an entrepreneur or the people in our circle, since we hang with a lot of entrepreneurs together. And I, I'd love to dive into the question of, as you're working with people that have literally everything, right? These are like people in some cases have hundreds of millions of dollars or have, you know, billion dollar companies, whatever that is. I'm curious to know about how worthiness shows up in the conversation. Yeah. So to, to sort of build on the intro, I've, you know, background in psychology. First business was a brick and mortar therapy practice. I kind of pivoted. It's a real long story. We don't need to tell it today, but, um, you know, I got into working with founders, these, you know, mainly in the tech ecosystem. And those are, you know, successful founders in the venture capital space, they're probably the, the, the quickest moving, right? Like the most accelerated kind of growth in business is, you know, what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years of, of, you know, where technology combined with venture capital has enabled people to build these companies, you know, these, these extraordinary vehicles for value creation when it does work very, very quickly. It's interesting because the motivation, like the, the underlying motivation to, you know, to go and try to do something like that as an individual, right? To be like, I, I want to go build something really, really big. It, it's an invitation to a bunch of first world problems, right? Like there isn't a level, if you're, if you're the person who's running one of these businesses and you're successful with it, there isn't a place where you achieve a level of success that your problems evaporate and it's all smooth sailing. Right. If anything, I think people who have done this would probably agree, you know, it gets harder and harder in new and different ways. And you learn things and master the problems of yesterday 
and then you confront the new challenges of tomorrow today and you keep on like it's a grind it's really really hard work and so i think like any anything any conversation about worthiness to me connects up with motivation because you know there's a lot of people who there's most i think most human beings out there if they could take care of their material needs in perpetuity right if they build something if they create some economic value like a business or whatever enough that they can kind of retire and live the good life so long as they don't get too caught up on that hedonic treadmill of comparing themselves to the joneses there's a lot of people who would opt out right who wouldn't you know push to build that billion dollar business and keep going but for the people who do i think that almost universally what's underlying them is uh is a a pathological in some senses desire to prove something right like to to show that there, there's a chip on their shoulder um and there's you know there's there's been some research that has shown that has shown that the sort of psychology of chips on shoulders is one of the best predictors of entrepreneurial tendencies in the human population that entrepreneurs uh, are typically people who are rejected by the system you know whether that's because they are immigrants they don't fit in um or it's because they are um, your neuroatypical learners in like a school system that's designed to produce a certain type of educational outcome for a certain type of neurotypical person or child, right? And so they find they're outsided and othered by that. But whatever the experience is, it seems to be that like entrepreneurs pretty much universally, when they're really driven, they have that, they have that chip on their shoulder that I think connects really closely to worthiness right? Like they're rejected by a system and then they choose to reject the system that rejected them. So there's this kind of like, I think about, I don't know if you were a fan of the show Futurama, but there's like some quote from the robot in that where he's like, screw this, we're going to have our own, we're going to have our own thing with strippers and strippers and beer, right? Like there's like a screw, screw, screw the world. I'm going to build my own company. I'm going to do it the way I want. Maybe not with strippers and beers, but right. But like, there's going to be a, uh, there's, there's a sort of a reckoning of like, if the world rejected me, I'm going to take so much control and build my own thing that I can in turn reject the world, which I think that you see expressed in the like, you know, in the circles we move in and like Silicon Valley and New York, people talk a lot about the fuck you money. Fuck you money is represents the opposite end of the spectrum from a worthiness problem, right? Like at a psychological level, it's the ability to say, uh, your perception of my worth no longer matters. I've never thought about it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I don't know. That's what I, I is, don't, it, like, but is, the, is that real though? Like, have you spent time with anyone that had fuck you money? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that the thing that it's, it's nuanced, right? It's not black or white because it depends who you're saying fuck you to. And there's the, there's, it's like the old joke about like, there's, there's always a bigger boat, right? Or like, there's always a bigger jet. There's always a guy who you can't, you know, you probably shouldn't say fuck you to. But I think that, you know, like people who have, uh, people who have achieved a level of material wealth where there's, where they're pretty anti-fragile, right? There's very little that can happen that's going to, you know, have to force them to spend their time in a way they don't want to spend or whatever, right? Like, it's usually defined and in, in amongst the entrepreneurs that I work with, it's usually defined as getting to a point where, there's a number, an AUM, like an assets under management number that like passively produces income at a very reasonable and recession-proof withdrawal rate. 
that like absolutely matches like a like a top tier income and yeah there's loads of people out there who achieve that kind of that kind of position in life yeah and i think for i guess for many of them and particularly many of the even higher achievers who are going beyond who are building these extraordinarily big things a lot of it is driven by that unworthiness right like a need to achieve to solve that problem of not feeling enough um it's the revenge of the nerds you know it's uh it's not the uh in most cases it's not the captain of the high school football team who's building this stuff right um who's like driven because that guy he gets enough for a bmw and a beach house and he's good well, I, I'm I'm wondering for you, and I, I didn't talk much about your story, but you've obviously had this kind of extraordinary journey of starting out in New Zealand, working your way to Australia, and then was New York the first place you touched down in the U.S.? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, what a ride. And I'm wondering for you in your journey, was there, I mean, I'm assuming there was a chip on your shoulder on some level that has driven you to come here and basically school us Americans on how we got to get our shit together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm also just I'm also just exploiting the uh, phenomenon of American culture and society. What you guys tend to listen more to people who talk with an accent, so that's really yeah, why. That's I'm true. Here. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I grew up in a I I grew up in a um, in a very small country. New Zealand's about five million people now. It was about four four when I I remember as a kid when it crossed over from three point something to four. So very little country, um, very little market, and um, you know I didn't. I didn't start out as an entrepreneur. I started out, um, you know, as a psychologist, like interested in psychology. And then I became an accidental business owner because the only way to do what I was passionate about was to be self-employed. So I trained as a psychotherapist. I looked at all of the career options available to like a very young person, you know, coming out and uh, as a professional for the first time into that world. And I didn't like any of them. And I thought it would be easier to start my own business and do what I wanted to do. And I was very wrong about that. It wasn't easier. It was much harder. And had I known how hard it would be, maybe I wouldn't have started. Um, but I but I did. I sort of started a business without realizing I was starting a business. And what I mean by that is like, I was almost like an artisan. Like I was like a furniture maker who just wants to make furniture. I, I just wanted to do psychology. And then I was like, I guess I've people have got to pay me directly for that if I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And so I, that's what I mean by accidental business owner. So, you know, my journey was like a kind of a funny one of, of being in love with the psychology and then slowly realizing that I had to learn to love the business. And it was reluctant at first. I kind of didn't want to have to figure out sales and marketing. And, but then I, you know, then I was hurting, like my business wasn't working and I had to learn that stuff. And as I started to, that's something I, I think about all the time, it's, it's easy to be passionate when you're winning. And as I started to learn a few things and try to be a little more entrepreneurial, initially just because I wanted to do the minimum entrepreneurial activity possible to just do the cool psychology stuff, after a while I got hooked on the game of business. Like I started to enjoy like being the entrepreneur and, and figuring out the marketing and the growth and stuff. And then I just went further and further down that rabbit hole. And um, I got to do some incredible things in my in my career as a as a consultant you know I, I started working more and more with entrepreneurs and businesses um, and becoming simultaneously more interested in business and entrepreneurship and eventually the market just wasn't big enough 
So I spent some, I ended up spending time in Australia, which is like New Zealand's big brother. We've kind of got a Canada, US sort of type relationship, but it's a bigger market. And, um, and then I started writing like the crazy thing that changed my life was I started writing on the internet about, um, about Ben's business and psychology at a time when no one was doing that. And I got a real early movers advantage and it caused me to be ranked in Google for all sorts of mental health keywords, plus the word entrepreneur. You know, I didn't predict this. I didn't intend for this to happen. I got pretty lucky in a lot of ways. But at that time, this is about 2006 or seven, there were a lot of people and founders in Silicon Valley who were trying to solve their mental health problems the way they solve all their problems, which is by Googling for solutions late at night. And so they started finding me and asking for consults. And so, you know, you and I met because one of those people Googled and found me and booked a consult with me. And then we built an incredible rapport and he introduced me and referred a bunch of people. I built this amazing network in the US. And so by the time I was traveling over there, like a lot, I had this incredible network. And, and in 2011, I made the decision to, you know, jump in full time. I was like, I'm going to go see what I can build out here. And so kind of brought myself and my practice, my client, you know, my clients were already all American for the most part. Um, and I, that's when I moved, moved to New York city in 2011. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear like, and I've, I've known this about you, but I've never really asked the question is like, how do you fit these two things in because on one hand you are running a business and it's like a high growth really involved business with commit action but then you're also in the process of you know you talked about being an artist and i see that you truly do love psychology and you love supporting the people that are on this journey of entrepreneurship how do you fit those two things together in your life what's well, changed a lot now because so when i first to, to continue that story when i first moved over my full-time job was being the shrink for entrepreneurs my work week looked like doing the maximum number of billable hours to support the clients and i had like really overwhelming demand um to but, but before i kind of burnt out and couldn't do anything else and i'd do a bit of writing i blogged a little bit about business psychology stuff to kind of keep my profile building and that was my life and you know, what happened, again, I, I kept falling in love with entrepreneurship. And as you know, I, I moved to New York and built a network where my entire social life was work, was amazing entrepreneurs as well. So I'm working with them, I'm hanging with them, but I'm actually not one of them. And I, I'm a really big believer in um, the definition of entrepreneurship as building a business that's that's bigger than you, that's bigger than you that functions without you. Like, I think that there's different levels. You can be self-employed, you can be a freelancer, and that's doing work, you know, fee for service, right? Selling your time. But when you're an entrepreneur, you're building something that's bigger than you. And so I was a service professional. I was selling my time and it was great. I, I built an amazing little business doing that. But I, after a while, I actually remember it was when I, um, sort of a lesson in the the side effects of goal accomplishment for the longest time it was just my goal to have like a book solid schedule which for me was about 25 hours of consults a week and i got that and then i increased my rates and lost a few clients then i filled that up again and i remember at an all new higher price per hour of of, of consult i had a full roster and i remember where i was when i had this realization i was sitting um in my apartment on Christopher Street that you've been to many times, I was sitting on the couch looking at my calendar for the next week and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm booked out and everyone's at the new rate. And then I was like, I did it. I achieved my goal. This is what I always wanted. And then I immediately went, oh, 
I don't know if I can do this for the next, for, 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 for forever, for the next five years. <laughs> and that was the day I started thinking about what's next. And what was next for me was building something new, a new business that was truly entrepreneurial. That was, was I started thinking about what could I do that actually scales where I can work only on the business and never actually in it. Because I proved to myself I can be in a business, I can sell, I could be the engine of value creation. So my next chapter was building something. And that that impulse to find that thing led me down the path of finding a problem in the market to solve, like an you know, a market demographic that needed it solved, and marrying up my skills, which are, to be honest, very narrow, right? Like I know a lot about psychology, a little bit about digital marketing. And I put the, all of that together and came up with the idea for commit action. And so that, yeah, that second chapter was, was sort of do something that scales. And I decided to bootstrap that as a business, funding it through, through my coaching, my successful coaching practice. And um, it took a really, really long time to figure it out and find product market fit, which is how bootstrapping works, right? Like instead of moving fast and spending lots of other people's money, I moved really slow and spent a little bit of my money. And um, yeah, and we played with it and played with it until 2019 when I realized I had something really significant that could be really big. And I went out and raised some venture capital financing to kind of pour fuel on the fire and, and blow it up. And that's exactly what we did. So, so now these days, to answer your question the long way around, I only do a couple of hours a week of, of client consults. I do it because I love it. I, I do it because I like to keep my kind of mental source sharp and I love working with entrepreneurs. Um, and it informs the stuff that we're doing at Commit Action. But when I'm not doing that, I'm, yeah, the CEO of a startup. Um, so I, you know, we have a team, we're scaling up. We, uh, I, I work on a business all day long and, and only spend a few hours a week selling my time, um, which I, I plan to do forever and ever. I, I've learned that I kind of, I kind of love it a little bit, um, but I don't think I'll ever go back to like a full-time roster of clients. So yeah, that's the balance these days. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, you really kind of touched on the premise of the show as well, which is kind of capturing that moment of success, which for you sounds like it was the full calendar at the high rate. You immediately, it sounds like you immediately went into the like, oh shit, is this the wrong mountain to climb? Or is this the mountain I want to be on top of? And then decided to build your business. And what, I, what I'm really wondering is because you've dealt with so many people that have been on this journey, what advice would you give people that are trying to figure out which lane to go down? Because I met many entrepreneurs and I'm like, I don't think you actually wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think you wanted to sell your time for money. I think you actually loved being the one-on-one -on -one interface with somebody. Like, what, what would you offer there for someone to get that clarity of going like, I don't want to go down the wrong road because I'm trying to follow someone like Peter's path. That's really interesting. So yeah, because I, I think about this a lot and it's funny, like that experience sitting on the couch in that apartment, looking at the calendar on my computer for the week ahead, seeing it booked out. It was this moment. It, I think of it as a moment where I really discovered I was an entrepreneur. One of the jokes I have with a lot of my clients that I remind them of all the time is like, you know, like an entrepreneur is someone who pops a bottle of champagne to celebrate a win, a goal being accomplished, a big victory in business. And by the time the cork hits the ground, they've already set the next goal and they're feeling shitty that they haven't accomplished it, right? There's like, <laughs> that's how, like, it's like this little moment. And I'm being facetious, right? Like, not all my clients are that psychologically broken and dark. But it was funny because it really was. Like, I, I made it about a week before I, I wouldn't say I was miserable, but I was anticipating future misery. Like, I was like, oh, like, this is kind of a lot. Like, I've, 
I've like, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own decisions, you know? And, uh, and so I kind of realized, I, I think that that way of thinking and that way of being is fundamentally entrepreneurial and like, that's how entrepreneurs work. And it's a blessing and it's a curse. It's a double-edged sword. Most of the best things in life and psychology certainly are. And I, I actually think it's a mistake for people to spend a lot of time analyzing and thinking and overthinking and overanalyzing which ladder, like which tree to lean their ladder up against. Um, and this is part of what I, I'm all about with what we do at Commit Action, where we're, we're, we're all about evidence-based coaching that's focused on helping people be very effective and, and take a lot of action, right? Um, one of the principles we have is like action is uh, action is everything. It's always the answer. And I think that it's better to live your life by doing a bunch of stuff like wholeheartedly and energetically, even if you end up climbing a bunch of ladders and getting to the bunch of a top of the tops of a bunch of trees only to discover this ain't it, right? Because there's a perspective that you get from up there, right? At the top of the, I'm blending metaphors, the tree, the wall, I forget what the metaphor is. There's a perspective that you get from doing that, that you cannot get at the ground level. There's also a strength that you develop through the climbing, right? So you get stronger when you climb, you build muscles when you climb. And so when you get to the top of the ladder, you realize it's the wrong one, you slide back down, you move the ladder to what you think is the right one, you're getting better at it right? You're getting, you're getting stronger and you're getting, and you're being able to, you're able to climb further and higher. And so a lot of, like I've worked with, I have clients that I've worked with for seven or eight years and as a confidant and an advisor, holding space for them on like a semi-regular basis, if not weekly for years at a time, right? And I've seen these people, these incredible high achievers do this where they're like, I want X and they go and get it. And then they're like, I'm happy. Oh, maybe I'm not. I'm starting to feel unhappy. Maybe it's why. Maybe I need why. And they go and get that too. And then it's not that either. And it's and it's not Z. But then they turn around and look back over the last five years of chasing these boondoggles. And they're like, damn, I, I really got a lot of stuff done. Right? And then they're like, now I've figured out that I, they're onto like C or D at this point. And they've gone back to the start of the alphabet in this metaphor. And they're like, now I really know that I want D. And guess what? It's not going to be that either. But, um, but they have a, like, like eventually they start to take a real joy in just getting there, right? Their muscles, their ladder climbing skill is really great at this point. And for, for, for a lot of them, they kind of realize that it's a cliche, but the, it's the journey, right? What, what they start to enjoy is not so much being at the tops of the trees. It's, it's just climbing those ladders. And so, yeah, I th- I think I think it is a like a real big fundamental piece of advice that I give to people. I would give to anyone starting out is like don't spend too long overanalyzing, overthinking like where you're going. It's better to just get going, building something. No, that's I mean that's really great advice. And I, I was actually thinking about the fact that part of the way you and I have bonded was being a bunch of game nerds where we'd get together and play board games. And I'd often think about it. I was like, by the time I was done playing the games with you guys, it was like these hard strategy games. Yeah. I would have burnt out the same part of my mind that I burnt out in business. It was literally like using the same mental faculty to try to solve problems and overcome them. And for whatever reason, I actually don't give a shit about, maybe now I do, but we used to play the game Pandemic or whatever it was. And it's like that, you know, it was like, do I really care about the idea of trying to figure out the strategy to prevent a pandemic from flowing all over the world? Turns out 
great. There's, that would have been a great opportunity. But, um, you know, at the time I was like, why am I willing to do that with such gusto and like do it for fun? But when it comes to a business thing that I need to do, I'm like, this feels like obligation. It doesn't feel like fun. And so yeah. that idea of like enjoying the ladder and seeing it as like, it's just a ladder to some other unknown place. It'll be just as interesting there. It's just all a game. Uh, I, I'm wondering how you relate to that concept. Like when you are on the ladder and you're like, this one sucks, this climb is too steep or the ladder's too long or whatever it is. Like, how do you, how do you keep yourself going when you have a moment of doubt where you're like, this is bullshit. And I don't think I know, I don't think I want to go where this is going. Well, see, so for your listeners out here, there's, I've got the benefit of, of a deep context with you. You know, we've been friends for, uh, 12 years now. Um, so, so, uh, I kind of know I can. I know what's going on between the lines. Um, so this is my answer. <laughs> the One of the most important things to sustain motivation in most entrepreneurs is, um, is, is agency. So almost all entrepreneurs have some value around freedom, right? Some more so than others. And it's funny because if, you, if you're a freedom maximizer, you don't want to build a venture-backed startup because success in that looks like 500 employees and being seriously diluted down in your ownership of the company um, and being accountable to a board who might love you and think you're a genius and, you know, be be uh, be building incentive classes of shares to vest more ownership of the company back into you because you're doing such a great job running it. But nevertheless... Like if you're running a big business like that, you're not free. You're deeply, deeply entrenched, right? You're connected to these people and you're powerful and you're a lot of things, but freedom isn't really a big one of them, right? Because if you get hit by a, like if you have a key man insurance policy um, taken out on you in a company, which most founders of these types of companies do have, then freedom isn't your number one value. And if it is, you're unhappy, right? In that moment. So entrepreneurs who truly value freedom, they tend to be the digital nomads, the the freedom maximizers, um, who try to build the one man business that's super high profit margin where they don't have to work that much. And some of them achieve it. And it's great if they do. We can talk a little bit about the the perils of making freedom your primary value maybe later. But the thing is, is that I think all entrepreneurs value freedom to some degree, right? So like even the founder of that big startup who's kind of got the weight of the world on his shoulders and a lot of accountability and responsibility, like at the end of the day, they probably wake up on a good day and think, hey, but at least I'm the boss. At least I quit my job in investment banking to do this, you know? Like I would imagine, I'd like to think that Jeff Bezos at some point was like, well, this is even on the worst day at Amazon, this is better than working at the old hedge fund that he was at before he quit to start, you know, the first Amazon books business, right? So we all value freedom to some degree. I think where entrepreneurs often get unhappy, like a lot of the time, is when they end up in a situation where it feels that agency was taken away, right? Where they lack volition, they lack agency, where they're not choosing to do the thing that they do. So a lot of like I, I've the 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 two different entrepreneurs could have this uh, have a very different response to the obligation of a Monday morning stand-up meeting with their team, right? Your digital nomad freedom maximizer might be like, oh, these people are so needy. Like, can't they just get on with it? Like, I'm trying to four-hour work week over here. Whereas your startup founder entrepreneur might be thinking, I love that we're building this culture. Leadership is super important to me. I love showing up. It's the best part of my week, getting people pumped and getting people focused and setting the direction and the goals for the week, right? 
The difference is who's choosing it, right? Who has agency? The unhappy entrepreneur feels like they're being made to do it. The happy entrepreneur feels like they're choosing to do it. And so it just so happens that this example is pertinent for you because your business and the dynamics behind it often over the last 10 years have put you in positions where you feel where you're lacking agency, where you have to do stuff out of obligation to others. So that's that's what I yeah. know. <laughs> well, that's yeah, why I was going to say that question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that's. I, I often wonder how you would help someone steer into the reality that maybe they do have more freedom than they realize in that moment. Because you know, example for me is I'm a musician. I love not having rules and structure. I run an airline. We have only rules and structure, right? It is like one, it's more regulated than the medical industry. Right. Uh, and of course, then there's like family obligation. Like I want to make sure my family's taken care of. There's like all these other things that come along with that. Uh, uh, but I am wondering, um, have you, have you been able to help people reframe it? Family businesses, uh, probably in the bullseye of like the most agency and volition robbing dynamics for entrepreneurs, right? And then like highly regulated industries are the other bullseye. And so you are doing both. Um, so it's important. So, so uh, one of my favorite things to say in a psychological context is consciousness is the first step, right? Like, so being, a, just being aware of that is really important because it means that, because it changes a lot of things mentally. It changes the standard that you hold yourself to. It changes how you compare yourself to others. You might, I don't know if you have, but you might have looked at me and thought, why the fuck is Peter so happy all the time, right? It's not fair. I want to be happy like him. And, you know, there's a reason for it, which is I don't run a family business in a highly regulated industry. So I, there's a whole dimension of suffering that I'm just not open to. The grass isn't always greener, right? There's a lot of other reasons that there's a lot of things that it's really cool that you get to do. Like, for example, fly jets around um, that uh, I don't get to do. So, but I think just knowing that and maintaining conscious awareness of that is going, is going to be super duper important, right? Because if you start, if you compare yourself to people's highlight reel without kind of acknowledging, like, these are the realities, right? For you, like, feeling free in the context of also being the CEO of a family business in a highly regulated industry is a win, but you're never going to feel as free while those things are true as the four hour work week douchebag who's selling bullshit courses, crypto courses online for 99% margin, right? Like you're just not, you're just not going to feel as free. Um, and that's, I, don't, I also think you don't want to be that guy, right? Like there's a, there's yeah. a whole bunch of other costs to being that guy, you know, that we could get into. So yeah, I think, um, I think consciousness is the first step. And then you're, you're, you're tapping into the right thing with your music as well. Like one of the things about freedom and about a lot of values that humans have that that and that entrepreneurs hold is like we just need to experience them but it doesn't sometimes we overthink it right like i've worked with um it's going to sound really cheesy but this is a true story from my from my client work over the years i had some clients who ran a very staff intensive services business it was an agency creative agency and they often i worked with the two co-founders partnered like you know 50-50 partners they often felt burdened by the responsibility of their staff and payroll services is hard because you're, you live on this margin on top of all these highly paid, highly skilled people. Right. And so it's, it's a tough business. It's a tough business model. Um, at, you know, at the best of times, 
And they often felt the burden of the lack of freedom and autonomy because, you know, having hired all these people, they had to show up for them. It was very difficult for them to just be like, I just want to go to Bali for three months, you know, because they couldn't. So that's not freedom. But one of the things that really helped them was we used to talk about, I don't know if you guys have this expression in America, where I'm from, we call it playing hooky, which is like when you, when you don't go to school, right? You like, yeah. when, a, when a school kid just like goes to the ball and like maybe gets arrested, like gets taken home by a police officer who sees them and is like, what are you doing here? That, that, uh, is that like a dynamic that happens in this country? Uh, I, I don't know anyone ever getting arrested, but the expression holds. Well, I grew up in a little small town environment where like the police, if they saw kids of a certain age on certain days of the year, would be like, I'm going to call your mums. That's kind of what it was like. So, um, yeah. So playing hooky was advice we gave. I gave them as, as founders of this business and they used to do it regularly, almost in the same way that like long term married couples will have like a scheduled date night. So they actually had a Wednesday morning appointment and they hit it on an I think it was fortnight, like every other week they would go and get brunch, like a weekend brunch, like pancakes, you know, I don't know if there was mimosas, but I, I don't know if they drank, but it was, it was a extravagant brunch on a Wednesday morning. And they did this to remind themselves, they specifically did it in a place where they could see people walking to and fro with suits on. And they did it to remind themselves that they weren't those guys right? It was like a, it was like an active metaphor of their life that they would, they would sit there and eat their pancakes and be like, look at these idiots working for the man, not like us, right? Where, you know, where, where we get to set our own rules. And it was this little ritual. And it was also like a partner meeting for them that they could spend some time together in their busy lives. But it was just a little, uh, a little, a sort of a totem, a little reminder of the freedom and agency that they do have, but on a bad day, they can forget about. And I think that stuff matters, right? And so like, you know, you've got your guitars on your wall, like anytime you go and do something really creative and unstructured, it serves the same purpose. Um, and that stuff works. As cheesy as it sounds, it really works, yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I, I, for a long time, I was like, I want to have a music career. I want to, you know, do the whole touring thing. And then it hit me, I also don't want structure in my creative pursuits. I don't want to have to perform on a particular day or have to deliver something by a certain time. So I actually really have rejected a lot of that structure. Even when like our old friends would be like, let's get together every Thursday night standing, hang out in Washington Square Park and play music. I was like, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I just want to go when I feel the spirit that day. One of it's one of my one of my favorite things to to make fun of my clients of is like the entrepreneurial tendency to kind of optimize everything, optimize and add structure to everything. Because a lot of us figure out in business, like if you want to be really high achieving, like you know you got to set goals, create processes, like you know KPIs, like manage you right, like you get very structured. And a lot of entrepreneurs do that with their hobbies, and then start to wonder why they feel dead and empty inside. And so I think it's great that you spotted that because in a way there's like nothing more tragic than like, you know, the entrepreneur who loved surfing so much that he decided to like start a surfboard company and then now spends all of his time talking to investors and looking at spreadsheets miles away from the beach. Um, you know, like it's, it's totally okay to, I actually think some of the happiest entrepreneurs in the world are those who have made money with really boring stuff, but they live these really, they, these really rich lives of where they're not value maximizing and optimizing their hobbies and stuff. 
I'm a big skier and I, I'll never forget I one time sat on the chairlift randomly at a at a pretty nice resort with the founder of a of a well-known snowboard apparel company. And I was I said to the guys like, Oh, you must get out here all the time. And he was like, This is actually one of my first days this season, and we were well into February. And it kind of blew my mind, right? Like I was like, Wow, okay. Yeah, we 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 saw that we saw that you know, aviation is such a sexy industry and when we had the flight school. You'd have people that had the dream of flying again, like what an amazing aspirational thing to do. So we would give people flight lessons, they get their license. And then we had one, one customer who was like, I'm going to start a flight school. We're like, oof, oh, so you're not going to fly much anymore then. Like it's, you know, you just kind of know it's, it's the death of the dream because you're in service of other people following their dream in some cases. And I, I do think a lot about that. There was a book called The E-Myth. And if you ever heard of that book, yeah. there was this idea of the entrepreneurial myth of like, you know, just because you're a great baker doesn't mean you should go into business of baking. Right. right. And I think I've, I've seen a lot of that. And again, we're in an industry that, like, if you're talking about, I don't know, HVAC companies or something, I don't think anyone's like, I have a passion for heating and ventilation and air conditioning. I don't think anyone does it out of passion, but I do think people enter our industry out of a passion only to find out that behind the scenes, it's actually a really, really tough business to be in. Right. So uh, I, I imagine you do see some of that stuff happened. And I think that's a lot of where my challenge came from is that we were surrounded by all these four hour work weekers and people that make, you know, infinite margin on the stuff that they're selling. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. They all seem happier than me. They all seem like they really love what they do. You know, I, I think I was trying to find that only to realize like there are people that are happy that they run a flight school. There are people that are happy that they run a charter company. There are people that are happy that they run a maintenance organization. You know, I think it's also those people kind of chose that intentionally. And, and in my case, I've found happiness in it, but man, you were there for the transition of like, what the yeah. hell's going on? I keep trying to climb all these different ladders only to find out none of them make me happy, but then like, what's wrong with me? Right. Uh, so right. it's a really, it's an interesting distinction. It's a really interesting distinction. Like I said, you were the, I think your words were the specific words that had illuminated how much I stop and start, how much I'm gas and brake at the same time. And it sucked. That was one of the worst conversations of my life, but worked out really well. Oh yeah. When, when did we have that one? We were sitting at a restaurant and I was, I had just done Landmark and in right. Landmark, they had me go ask questions of like, what is the one thing my friends would say that they can really depend on me for? And what's the one thing they can't depend on me for? And you were like, uh, probably to follow through on anything you say you're going to do. <laughs> uh, and I brutal. was like, Ooh, it was absolutely brutal. It was so uncomfortable. If you're listening to this at home and wondering how difficult it is to be my friends, trust your instincts. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was, it was truly like one of the most important conversations of my life. Cause I was like, well, if that's actually, cause it wasn't a question of how you see me. It was a question of how our friends see me. That's why it was such like a bomb for me where I was like, wow, that is probably how everyone sees me. And I do see that pattern of, I'm trying to start and stop and do all these things and have dreams of building the next big thing. Um, when you said it, I was like, I really have to reconcile. Do I feel happy with the fact that that's how people see me now? Yeah. Well, I think if we can use social shame to drive a really meaningful behavior change, that's a job well done. You know, it ain't much, but it's honest work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's, in, it kind of ties in nicely with everything we've talked about. I think at that time, I remember the conversation now, this was a while ago. At that time, you were definitely in this phase of life where, you know, you've been climbing a really big ladder because not all ladders and trees are equal, right? And the one that you're on with the aviation company and is still on in some ways, it's a big, long climb and you're really high at it. Like, to be honest, you've achieved a lot. You know, you've really done amazing things, but you were on it 
and climbing high and kind of going, I don't know if this is where I want, like, I don't know if this is, if this is it, then I don't know if I'm happy, right? It's like me with my calendar. Like that week I was happy, but I was like, but if this is it, I don't know. And then what I was observing was a lot of that ground level analysis, right? You were like, you were like down on the ground with an armful of five ladders being like, I think that one and this one and this one, I'm going to put one foot on that one, one foot or the other, and then get down off that one, go over to this one, right? We, um, there's a, it, it, a, a lot of people, a lot of people get stuck in that, that space of like over, overthinking and overanalyzing where to begin and trying a lot of things and then kind of walking back and trying something new. I think we've talked about this. It's, it's because of the, the psychological addiction to, um, optimism and, and, and the uninformed optimism that you can only feel when you're at the beginning of a journey, right? Like it's only when you don't know anything about something, right? Like becoming a musician or whatever, like God bless this, the, the 14 year old boy who suddenly realizes that he can play thrash metal without, with very little skill. And is like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get after it. Right. Gets real excited about it. Gets, starts wearing eyeliner, like, you know, goes down the whole thing. But when you start a new project, there's, there is uninformed optimism because you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know about the difficulties that people will encounter. It's easy to believe this is going to be nothing but an upward ascent to greatness and happiness and all the things that you want. And so what tends to happen is people take action on these ideas over time. And the more action that they take, the more they learn about why, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. But of course it's not. You know, like it's not nothing and, and nothing in life that's that's creates lasting concrete value is easy by definition. Right. And so they start to become a little more pessimistic at the same rate they become informed. And so one of the one of the most the most seductive, insidious forms of human self-sabotage is the quitting of good ideas to go back to a brand new idea because new ideas always feel more exciting than medium old ideas you've been grappling with right yeah i think that was the pattern and it's a it's a it's a fantastic pattern to identify and let go because it, it it creates sort of an arrested development you can't you can't win in anything unless you get through the suck that isn't that is a part of any type of goal accomplishment and but there's a high there's a high that people chase of uninformed optimism of like oh this new idea is going to be it you know I mean, I, I think in many ways I wasn't served by the fact that I'm around the winners all the time, right? Like the people that are in our entrepreneur groups, they're not the losers. They're the ones that have already beat the odds. They're, the, they're in that minority. So there was a little bit of like a confirmation or selection bias at play all the time. Like example, I always said like, I really should have done real estate in New York because everyone I know in New York has done really well at real estate. Yeah, because all the ones that lost aren't here anymore. Okay. They're all gone. Only the winners hung around, right? They're the ones that can afford to spend this kind of money on a dinner. So uh, I, I think that was also part of the really insidious nature was I just didn't have the real data. I had this bias of like, everyone else seems to be doing so well. Uh, but yeah, I, I really appreciate that concept of the uninformed optimism. I think that was a very alluring beast for a while. And yeah. going back to worthiness, kind of landing the plane on that front is, you know, I kind of think about, because I think our conversation must have been eight or nine years ago where we talked about that, like I stop and start uh, a lot. And it was only in about 2019 when I realized, wait a minute, I feel this sense of 
uh, or lack of freedom to do what I want to do in the company. It feels like an obligation. And when I actually went and, and proof tested it, it turned it out, it turned out my parents were like, oh, do whatever you want. Like, if you think it's a good idea, do it. And I was like, wait a minute, all this time, I had been carrying this false idea that I can't put my own thumbprint on it. And what I really think it was, was the subconscious fear that if I put my thumbprint on it, it fails, then it's my fault. Bad. And then I actually am carrying the torch. So in a lot of ways, it took me a little while to figure it out. And I think that has changed my relationship. I do feel that I have the freedom to create my vision and to you know run it by my parents. I still like to get their blessing when I do something. But it is actually really funny to recount that. There's how much at the time, if you had asked me, I would say, I couldn't possibly do any of those things. Bad. And it's like, why? Oh shit, is only because that was my own sense of self-worth. It's or or this idea that like I had to win at everything. It's like you're an entrepreneur, you're not supposed to win at everything. No one wins at everything. Right. There's, I mean, I was gonna say it's important to call out that there's nothing that kills a company fast enough than faster than, you know, refusing to act on anything that and in, that involves risk. Right? Like yeah. if you, if you just sit there only willing to execute strategy that is, that is guaranteed, then you're stuck. You do nothing because there are no guarantees, right? Like you're not, you're not, uh, you can't try anything new. You can only do things that you did in the past. And that's the, uh, you know, it's the innovators dilemma in some, in some sense, right? It's like, that's the death of all innovation and growth in business, which is when you're just driving forward by looking in the rear view mirror. It's the oldest cliche in the book. Um, but yeah, it's crazy to to kind of unpack like how how someone can get there, you know. Um, but it's it's yeah. very common. A lot of a lot of business people, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of giant corporations will will be in that holding pattern in a slow downward spiral for 30, 50 years, you know. Um, but yeah, you got yeah, you gotta be able to try new stuff. And uh and that is on that is I think that's the fundamental act of entrepreneurship is you know, it's, 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 it's risk-taking, right? It's like, it's rolling the dice on ideas that, um, there's an asymmetric reward to the amount of risk that's being taken. You want to avoid terminal risk, right? Like you don't want to bet the house, your bet, your book, underwrite your business with your, with your mortgage and have your wife and kids or whatever out on the street. But you, you got to take shots at, you got to, you got to, you got to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. That's what, that's what, that's what entrepreneurship is. Very cool. I think we actually, I always love when this happens. It kind of came back full circle too to what you said is that the really the dominant strategy is to get into action, right? Take action, keep moving, keep going, keep trying stuff. And I, I think that's kind of the single biggest thing I took away from this. I wanted to enter unworthiness, but really got to that point of like, just do stuff, right? Just do more stuff. Like, at least if it's in line with your business, don't go run out and maybe do what I did, which is like, I'm going to try to start nine things because I have no idea which one to do, but to really commit action, I guess. If you get, I mean, it is, it is obviously it's a cliche because this is what my company is called, commit action. It's what we're all about. And, you know, there is a reason that it's my agenda, but I, I mean, and from the bottom of my heart, I do believe this to be true. I think that, first of all, I think that entrepreneurship itself is a task ill right? It's not something that you can learn. Your parents can't teach it to you. Your, you know, school certainly can't teach it to you. The only way to learn it is by doing it, right? And so therefore, you're, by, by even taking imperfect action, even outright boneheaded wrong action on bad ideas, so long as you keep your eyes open and your kind of heart open, you know, and you to learning, 
So long as you're willing to learn from the consequences of taking action on dumb ideas, then you're going to progress. Like the next idea you have, if it's informed by the bad one you just actioned, you'll, you'll have learned something by colliding with the real world, by, right, by actually shipping something. I think what, what a lot of people don't realize is that the thinking, the analysis, the strategy part, the whiteboarding of ideas to try to find the perfect strategy, that's all, that's all an unconscious effort to hide from from risk from from fear of failure right it's a way to avoid taking act taking action and so yeah and 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 the problem is that you don't learn anything by having until by by having ideas but not doing them right you don't gain any of that real world school of hard knock street smart experience that is what makes entrepreneurs into entrepreneurs so yes uh, moral of the story is yeah, action is everything. Yeah. Well, thanks. I never, I'm embarrassed to say I never understood your company name in that uh, deep of a sense. So uh, well done. Well done. It seems like you put real thought into that. I'm kind of arriving at it going, that actually does make a lot of sense is just to commit to taking action uh, and really push through that path. Because I think if you don't, you don't get to the learning and you just play in this ridiculous cycle over and over and over again fueled by that uninformed optimism that you said. So I think that's, for me, the biggest takeaway. Uh, I'd love to, again, close it out with just, if you're uh, interested in what Peter's company does, you could check out commitaction.com. Uh, Peter, I think we touched on the book, The E-Myth. If, you're, if you are someone who's really good at a skill and thinking of launching a business doing that, you could check the E-Myth book out. And Peter, were there any recommendations from all these things we spoke about that you want to leave anyone with? Um, I mean, yeah, come check us out at Commit Action. We've got tons of cool resources and uh, uh, on this stuff if you want to go down the the science rabbit hole um, as well as something I'm really passionate about, the sort of evidence-based psychology. But I think I think that's about it. That'd be great. Um, Emma's a great book. I'm, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. I mean, there's there's hundreds awesome. of amazing things, but maybe we maybe you maybe we should come back for book for a book club episode. That sounds great. I know you read more than I do, but I really appreciate the time. And it's, well, it's such a treat to get to talk to, again, just a, one of my closest friends in life and get to talk about really cool stuff. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, man. Anytime. I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope you all enjoyed. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash Nick Tarasio, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio, or YouTube.com slash N Tarasio. <laughs>